welcome to the show and thanks for listening or watching if you're on YouTube. I've got a real superstar today, Ben Levitt. He is a social media expert and YouTube star with over 85,000 subscribers. And I found him just by searching for information about podcasting. And I was just really impressed with the quality of his videos as well as the actual content. And so I learned a ton from watching the videos that I saw of his. Um, so if you're interested in podcasting or social media, either you have those and you want to grow them already, or you're thinking about starting a YouTube channel or a podcast or a business uh, via social media page, then this episode is going to be extremely valuable to you. Uh, my show is all about entertaining, inspiring, and educating people. And while Ben's story of him growing his YouTube channel to 85,000 subscribers is definitely inspiring, uh, I think the episode is really going to lean a lot on the education aspect. And I found it all fascinating and extremely useful, and I hope you will too. Welcome, Ben Levitt. And I said that right, I hope. You did, you did. Yeah, most people do not, but you did. Really? Yeah, I heard you, I heard you, I heard it said in one other interview or something, but I was, and I wrote it down. I was like, okay, it's Levitt. Cause I wondered myself, is it Leave It or Levitt? But then. Yeah, and honestly, like, I can't even get mad at people for pronouncing it Leave It because it is spelt like that, yeah. but it is pronounced uh, Levitt. Okay, perfect. So Ben Levitt, social media expert, or how, what do you like to call yourself? I've heard you've called many different things. What is your, the preferred term? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I definitely, uh, it, I don't really care too, too much. I, I'd say probably a social media expert or social media marketer, something along those lines. Okay. Uh, definitely varies depending on who I'm talking to. Yeah. And we'll talk, cause we're going to talk about all the social media platforms plus podcasting. And, um, and we got to talk Minshew cause you're a Jaguars fan. So I'm a big Minshew fan. I don't know if you could see I'm wearing a Cougar shirt, uh, I'm a big WSU fan. And so I loved Minshew. So I've still followed his career. Are you rooting for him or the Trevor Lawrence? Well, I do have deep love for Minshew, but yeah. We did see that athletically, he's, he is limited far more so than Trevor sure, is. So sure. On a roster that's not perfect, Trevor's probably the, the guy you want to go with. But I really do hope, honestly, I hope he gets traded somewhere else where he can go start. And I think he will have a good career. Yeah, at least he can have like kind of like a Fitzpatrick type of career, I think. Yes, yes. And same sort of kind of personality-wise, too, where he really invigorates a team, even if it's yeah. for a short amount of time. Like Fitz Magic, Yeah, exactly. That's a, that's a good comparison. Um, so, yeah, let's talk about you, though. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about your background just because I want people to see that what you do. I mean, you have 85,000-plus subscribers on YouTube, but it is realistic, like, like how you did it. It wasn't like, you know, you just had millions of dollars that you pumped into ads or something like that. Like, you came from a, a regular background. Your parents were entrepreneurs, and you kind of – became an entrepreneur at a young age with your paper route. And uh, I mean, t tell, tell, the, tell my audience about that. Yeah, yeah. So obviously you've done your homework, which is awesome. But uh, yeah, so came from two parents that ran their own businesses. And I was just very much drawn to really doing things myself. Like if, if instead of going, wanting to go buy a specific t-shirt, I, I was the kid that wanted to go like, make my own t-shirt or, or things of that hmm. nature. So it very much started with uh, the paper route and like, selling Pokemon cards, things of that nature. And then it became a little more legit with every uh, bit of maturity. So we started selling longboards uh, in mm. high school. That was my first like semi-legit business. And then we started a sports apparel store and then a bunch of other things. It's just the whole element of creating something and then also exchanging it to then receive money. And then I can turn that money into whatever I want. That, I was, that always fascinated me. So definitely got the entrepreneurial itch very early. And I knew from the age of like 12 that I would work for myself for sure. That's awesome. Yeah. And so, cause originally you're, you're kind of more into sports and playing football, a running back, a linebacker, but then obviously that kind of didn't happen. I mean, you're not going to go pro. So then you kind of realize, all right, now I'm going all in on this 
entrepreneur stuff, but your parents made you go to college anyways. So you're kind of able to kind of work on the entrepreneur stuff and get yourself in a position to when you graduate, you can take, cause you only had a job for like eight or nine months in after college. Right. And, and then you were able to be independent. So yes, how did yeah, you, absolutely. how did you sure. get to that point? Did you start the YouTube stuff? And is that when it started in college? Yeah. Yeah. So I started that in college. So I was playing uh, at my school and then I just had a bunch of injuries and also I looked, so this was a big moment for me. So I, I played football in Canada. So a lot of people south of the border don't know that we even play football up here, but we, we do. And yeah, we have, have Canadian football league. league. Yeah, exactly. And so we have our own pro league called the Canadian football league. And after I got some injuries, I went and looked up like what a CFL player makes. And I was like, after all these injuries that I've gone through, I was like, that's, that salary is not worth the risk of my body anymore. So that was a big moment oh. for me because that would have been the pinnacle of my success would have been CFL. So then when okay. I looked at it as, and I thought about what I could do from a business perspective, I just see, I just saw that the, the ROI was far more geared towards the business, given how much damage I'd already put on my body at the age of mm. like 21, 22. So I decided to stop playing football and then started going this more businessy route. I was doing tons of different side hustles while in school, like starting my own clothing line, stuff, stuff that a lot of entrepreneurial minded people do. Mm. And then I started the YouTube channel I always wanted to start one, but what really got me off the sidelines was when I actually had a football injury, when I tore my ACL. And then I went to look after I, on YouTube after I had torn my ACL to look for videos and there was no solid content. It was all huh. very old or poorly made and nothing that was actually just like person to person, which I felt I really wanted. I wanted somebody's personal experience. And so I was like, okay, this, this must be the universe pushing me into the YouTube game. So I started making my first videos at around like my sophomore year of college and I uh, haven't really stopped since. Yeah. So it started out with the ACL stuff and obviously it's, it's um, shifted into what you're doing now, but I thought it was interesting too. So like after college, you had this job, like I said, it was only for eight, what, eight or nine months. So talk about that because I think that was something I really related to in hearing your story that you were a very bad employee. Like you were always thinking about like your own stuff or if you ran the company, how you'd run it differently. And I think a lot of yes. people can relate to that. Mm -hmm. So I, like, like I said, I should never have gone to college. College doesn't really make sense for me, especially knowing what I wanted to do, mm -hmm. because the only reason I ever had a full-time job was because I went to college and had debt because of it. So it was very much a, a backwards thing, but knowing that I wanted to go the entrepreneurial route as soon as possible, I started building things that could grow beyond my time while in school. So that helped me one to pay off the debt as it came in, but also to have an additional income source that I could build while still at this job to then hopefully get out of the whole situation far faster. And you, you were accurate. It was about eight months. I, I had, I was running my business, my channel and had a full-time job, but then was able to transition because I was, I was just making more from my own stuff than I was my job. So it was actually mm. like costing me money to stay there in terms of opportunity cost. Oh. So that, that was a, a big, big thing for sure. And I, I, I always knew that I wanted to go that route. So I figured start now, even though I am in school and uh, hopefully it'll return itself in the future. Oh yeah, for sure. Now that's, that's amazing that you're able to do that so young. I mean, I'm old and I'm trying to do like what you did already. It's at such a young age. It's amazing. So let's talk about YouTube. So you say it's the, the best thing you like about that is it's a search engine, which is a huge, because that way creators and people who are looking for content can find each other easier. Yes, absolutely. And as a marketer, I don't know if there's any greater tool that is easier to leverage. And what I mean is once you understand YouTube, even at a, like a decent level, you can replicate this from a marketing or a, a commerce perspective 
so easily across so many different things. And with the internet, it's it, it gives you access to billions of consumers, right? Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not millions, it's billions with a B. So if you think like a marketer or like an entrepreneur, it's really endless what you can do. And why I love it from the search engine point is you don't even have to be necessarily like the most creative person to still do well on YouTube from a business perspective, because a lot of it is search based, meaning that they're actively seeking out this content. So oftentimes it might be even dry content, but if someone makes the right video, it can still be discovered. And then if there's a business application around that video, you can do wonderful things. Like some of our clients in the agency, they're making a ton of money every single year. And a lot of it's coming from YouTube, but they're only getting like 10,000, 15,000 views a month, but it's what those views mean and the intent and the person behind that view that makes it so valuable. So I, I love YouTube and I always tell people the same line. YouTube is essentially a salesperson that you don't have to pay. They'll hmm. actually pay you and they work 24 seven. Yeah. Well, you say started to think of it as a business and an educational focus, kind of like that niche market. What I think is interesting about so many YouTube videos, I don't know if you've noticed this yourself, but whenever I'm having problems like a computer issue or something, I'll go on YouTube and try to search for a video. But the problem is so many of these videos are so long for a very simple, have you noticed that? Like a very simple mm -hmm. thing. Uh, just like the other day, there was a problem with iMovie and I Googled this thing and it was like a two minute video and it was amazing. I'm like, this is a rarity though. I feel like a lot of things, it's like the person like, Hey guys, my name is Steve and here's my, and it's like, just get to the point. And that's what I think I like about your channel is you just, you go right into it. Absolutely. I try to value people's time where I can. Oftentimes when you see people kind of bleed out the clock, they're, mm -hmm. they're usually trying to do it because they want to extend the video to a length where you can have numerous ads included. So then you ah. make more money from AdSense. That's a lot of times what that's what they're trying to do just to keep you there to get more of that. Uh, I, I don't really take that approach. Like the, the smallest revenue source for my business and uh, all that I do is actually YouTube AdSense. It's a very small piece of the pie. So I try to make it more about what these videos mean, who is attracting, and then get them into our world for other offers. Right. Because you're getting more from uh, people reaching out to you because of your content, not necessarily mm -hmm. making money off the videos from YouTube itself, but people reaching out and saying, hey, we'd like to hire you as a consultant or something. Yeah, exactly. So a lot of, lot of consulting stuff. Um, and then also within our agency, we have a team of editors uh, and then we, we assist with YouTube strategy across the board. Uh, we used to do a lot more Instagram too, but we're focusing primarily on the YouTube side. Okay. Uh, so we basically bring people's channels to life, help them attract the people they're trying to, to get in front of. And uh, that's a, the, the YouTube is a huge tool for that. I haven't had to hire any salespeople because they're all inbound leads. And the best thing about an inbound lead that's is amazing. That it's, it's not really a sales call. It's more often than not, it's an onboarding call, right? Hmm. They, they're already, they've made that choice. They already know, like, and trust you. They just want to know how much and then pay you. Right. No, that's exactly right. Yeah. Cause that's how I felt when I reached out to you to be a guest. I was like, I feel like I already know you and I just want I want you to come on the show. Like I don't, I don't need to ask, interview you beforehand or whatever. I know exactly what I'm getting. Cause I've seen all your videos. Yeah. That's a very powerful thing, regardless of what industry you're in or what your goals are. People like people and there's no other way to connect with someone on the internet or especially social media that's as powerful or can create as quick of a connection as a video can, especially as, since you're directing it, you are doing every piece of it. You're deciding what people see. So as long as you're genuine, people are going to connect with you quite quickly. Yeah. So your YouTube channel, like we said, it started out fitness and then you switch because you're not a fitness expert and you learn what you're good at. And that's huge. Yeah. And I think that's probably a lesson that you teach for a lot of people because like we said, you know, kind of get into a niche, but also 
get into what you said. What, what did you say before about niche versus uh, general? Like the general thing is like much a longer game, right? Like if you have a niche, you can get uh, followers right away. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's just a pretty simple equation, right? Like if someone, if it's, if it's difficult to determine exactly what your point of value is, how can you expect across the board? It's, it's an issue because mm-hmm. YouTube's not going to know who to show the content to. And two, even who is shown the content, if it's not like clear and obvious that that's the point of value, how can you expect them to sign up for more? Mm-hmm. Right. And so it's, there's just a lot of disconnect there. So you can absolutely build a brand that is far more broad, far more generic, but there's no certainty. You need some sort of other outlier of skill. Either you're incredibly unique. stuff you talk about is very, very unique, or you have some sort of skill set that allows you to stand out in a very contested space. But if you are skilled uh, or in a very specific niche, you can easily start stacking some wins. And the awesome thing about YouTube is once you get one video that goes, everything becomes so much easier, especially when you're creating content within Hmm. that niche. What Hmm. works will work again. And Hmm. oftentimes people's channels don't grow because they're attempting to reinvent the wheel and you just don't have to. What works will work again. If it worked for somebody else, it'll probably even work for you too. Okay. Yeah. You know, what's interesting about YouTube too is that I found that you can literally be a YouTuber about anything. I told my buddy the other day, he loves doing yard work. I go, dude, start a yard work YouTube channel. And then I, I Googled, I looked it up and I was like, let's see if there's any like yard work video. There's videos that are 45 minute videos that have millions of views about cutting grass. I mean, so you, if, if that's something that's get millions of views, I mean, you could get millions of views doing anything, right? 100%. Like it's people don't understand. And they often have that same sort of thing where, Oh, it's, mine's not, my interest isn't cool enough or my, my, uh, my field isn't cool enough you have access to everyone. Like it's the internet, right? So it's, it's not mm-hmm. just what maybe it's not even what you watch necessarily. There's people right. out there on YouTube, like you said, watching grass cutting videos. <laughs> like, like if you don't go out and see that, you wouldn't think there's a market <laughs> yeah, for it, but millions. nine times out of 10, there's a market for it. Yeah, no, that's, and that's, that's like, even when I started with a lot of like back here, you can see, I'm into like hair metal and stuff. And I thought, I thought when I was a kid, I grew up in Seattle in the nineties and it was grunge. Right. Everything was, I was the only person that I knew that liked hair metal. And then you find on the internet, there's millions of people that like this stuff. So, um, but talking back to your, uh, your channel. So you started and you were getting like 70 views a video. Then months later, it, it went into the thousands. So how did, how did that happen? Like you said that you kind of did it by accident, but you also said you kind of knew the videos may not pop until months or years later. So what was the strategy there? Like, how did you do that? Cause that's amazing. Yeah. So the, the first few videos I made about my ACL, they all did really well, but okay. that's, it's a very, uh, you can't really go very far. It's a very right. narrow niche. Right. So then when I tried to get into like more of the bloggy type stuff, uh, the fitness related content, and even my early marketing videos, there was getting little to no traffic whatsoever. Like if I got 50 or 60 views in a span of a month, I considered that a win. So for context, like it started off very, very slow. Then the one video that popped off was a mix of a few different things. I made the video before that topic was very much trending. So I was able to Mm. ride the wave up. And I also constructed the video in a way that did basically like all of the YouTube best practices from a video creation standpoint, as well as in the back end, like in terms of targeting. So like how the video is, is, was created. And again, I said accidentally because a lot of it wasn't done as strategic as I would do it now, but Mm -hmm. it was filmed in a way that would lend for very long viewer retention. So because I had a decent thumbnail with it speaking to 
directly to people who would want that video. And then I filmed the video in a way that would keep people around for a long time. Those are the two indicators for YouTube. It, it, people do okay. try to overcomplicate YouTube, but if you get a video that gets a lot of people clicking and they stay, a lot of people are going to see it. And it's off, it is that simple. It's not as easy to get that. Yeah. But if you do, that's the ticket. So which I'm trying to look and see which one are you talking about that that was the one that popped? Was that... Um, that was my beginner's guide to podcasting. Okay. I made that video, I think it was 2018, 2019. Two years and, ago, it says on, yeah. So. Mm-hmm. And I didn't think anything of it. And I, I have, I oftentimes will sometimes go back and look at the chart or when I'm on consulting calls, I'll show the chart. It was like dead, 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 dead. And then it goes. So, and it was honestly Here. three or four months later. Really? Mm-hmm. It was dead for three or four months. But the, the best thing about YouTube, I guess two things is a video is never dead. Yeah. And if you have a great video, you still have a chance to outrank very established channels and very reputable names. For context, I was a channel of maybe a thousand subscribers at that time, maybe. And I was ranking number one for the word podcast. So I was ranking above wow. Gary V, like all these people who had videos around these subjects, and I was ranking number one. So that's what I think it's true. YouTube is a true democracy. Like if you have the best yeah. product, you, you, we'll get the best results. Well, it's interesting because, um, so I put, I put all my podcasts on YouTube probably about halfway through. I'd start or like after like episode 50, I think I decided I go, I'm going to put everything on YouTube. So I, I, I backloaded all my old episodes that didn't ha- even have video on it, but they're on okay. YouTube. And it's weird because at first, you know, they didn't really get very, very many views, but then a few months later, some of the comedian ones like just got started all of a sudden started getting thousands of views. Now, do you think that is because for whatever reason they ranked high or something, or do you think those comedians are maybe paying like for, is there such a thing as like an aggregator or something that can like, or they paid for views or something? It just seems very odd that I was like, why are these videos all of a sudden getting? Yeah. There's a thousand potential answers to that. Question. Okay. <laughs> like one could be that it they could have ranked in search for that yeah. person's name mm-hmm. Two, It could have been that YouTube felt comfortable enough knowing that that was about that specific comedian. Okay. Meaning that if so, all their fans who were watching a ton of other content that was about that comedian, it's very likely they'd start suggesting that. So for me to answer that question, I would have to see the back end and see where this traffic was coming from. But very quickly, if I were to see those numbers, I'd be able to tell you right away what was happening. Hmm. But, there, but that's an awesome, another awesome thing about YouTube too is that like you could make a video three years ago that could go viral today because of something the change in trends or the hmm. changing something that's happening. For example, if you had a Zoom tutorial before the oh. pandemic, say, say if you had that out just before, you would have gotten millions of views. And that's not even an exaggeration. Yeah. People weren't thinking that that would pop off the way that it would. So You're right. it's, it's never a bad thing to have a video out there. That's true. That's a really good point. So how many hours do you spend on a 10 or 15 minute YouTube video? So if, you, if we're talking the whole process, it used to be way more when I didn't have a team to edit my videos, but now I'm, I'm very... Uh, I'm very happy that I don't edit, edit any of my content anymore. It's so nice. I just, I was like a five or six out of 10 when it came to video editing, I could get it done, but I could pay someone and they'd be way better at it and they'd enjoy it way more too. Uh, so uh, that's what I do now. But my, my only involvement is I'll, I'll do the research because that's usually my specialty is mm-hmm. finding the right topics. And then I'll script the video loosely and then I'll film it. So I'd say for a 15 minute video, probably in total, like an hour, a half, hour and a half, two hours of work. But so before when you had the outsourcing, when you did everything yourself, how long would it take? Like you're looking at probably four or five hours because the editing okay. process. Well, that's not that bad though. No. no and you only put out one a week, right? Yep. Yeah. I was putting out one a week for a while. Okay. Um, I had a question too. Also, what is the, um, I noticed this with a lot of uh, YouTube videos 
the, the, the background music throughout the videos. I've seen a lot of other YouTubers do this. What is the strategy behind that? Is there some, there's yeah, some so, sort of thing there, right? Well, I just noticed over my research and then looking at YouTube at large is a lot. Sometimes people will complain about it, but on average, yeah, I kind of don't like it to be honest. <laughs> no. And, and some people fall into that camp too. And, and I, I wouldn't even say that I love it, especially if it's not too loud, mm -hmm. Sorry, if it is too loud, but on average, those videos like the, with the background music led to higher viewer retention. So hmm. it, while it may really alienate certain people, it seems like for the masses, it keeps them there longer. And in, if we're playing a, a masses game, yeah. it's one of those things where if it's going to keep more people there longer and maybe potentially alienate a few people, you're, you're probably going to make that decision. Mm -hmm. I don't think you need to have background music. I've just found that historically, a lot of the videos that I've looked into there was some sort of that. So, but there's some sort of, there must be some sort of science behind this, right? That, that people for whatever reason are more drawn to things or like they have less chance of leave. There, there's a science behind it, right? There has to be. Well, yeah. So like, this is totally like just anecdotal, but, but I, I think it's because they kind of get lulled into the consumption of it. Right. So especially if it's an ongoing song, oftentimes people don't want to start and then not finish a song. So hmm. if you, okay. I, I just find that it's, they're far more, Kind of going through the motions, if yeah. you will. Whereas if you're just if it's just your voice, they're they're listening to every single nuance, every single word. Whereas this kind of makes it more of like an episodic thing where you just kind of get lulled into mm. the consumption of it. Is is again a total uh, like total guess or observation on my part based on what I think, but yeah. I don't know that based on fact. Yeah. So another thing, kind of uh, piggybacking on the Zoom thing that you said, like uh, one YouTube tip that you said is being first. Like if there's a change to Instagram, you said that you want to be the first one to make a video of it. So to, to timing is a big piece of, the, of that, right? Massive, especially if you're a small creator. And so often mm. I deal with people, even on consulting calls where they're like, it's too late for YouTube. Like I just can't break through. Like, all the traffic goes to these bigger channels. And a lot of times for the very competitive search terms, it's going to go to them because they can typically put out a better product and they have a bit of leverage to get the momentum going. But typically, once they, you, the bigger your channel gets, the slower your output typically becomes because you have so many moving parts. Whereas before when I was editing my own videos, it was all on me. So I could bang a video very, very quickly. Mm. And so if you're a very small creator, a very small channel, you should absolutely be very urgent with your creation process when big news drops because hmm. YouTube doesn't care. If, if there isn't another alternative, they'll show a channel with zero subscribers. Like it, it, they don't alienate based on that. They, they alienate or they, they dictate what people see based on demand and then supply. So a big breakthrough moment for me was when uh, YouTube, sorry, Instagram changed one of their features. I'd come home from work that day it was like eight or 9 PM at night. And I was like, if I wait till tomorrow, there might be somebody else who's made a video. So I'm going to do it right now. Mm. I made the video. It was not even a, a good video if I'm being honest, but it was a video on the subject and people were looking for this subject. So my channel, which maybe had 2,500 subscribers at this time, I had a video that overnight got 50,000 views because I was the only option. So by default, they're coming to my channel. And that in turn brought in like 500 subscribers overnight, something along those lines. Wow. So that was Think about that change and from a percentage wise of my audience. So it, there's never an excuse for why you're, you're not growing. There's always more that you can be doing. And sometimes you just got to switch up your strategy and, and give yourself a better opportunity to get more from the output you're actually putting in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and also like, I think you said, uh, I don't know if it was you or someone else that I re heard in an interview said to be a good YouTuber, you really need to make like a hundred videos. And, and if you just make each one slightly better than the next by the hundred and first video, you'll be an amazing YouTuber. Yeah, I think Mr. Beast says that all the time. Okay. Who's mm -hmm. that? 
So Mr. Beast is one of the, the biggest YouTubers on the planet. And oh, that's, shit. that's actually, I was in a few clubhouse rooms with him and that's where he, he almost kept saying the exact same advice because everybody's coming up and looking for the secret sauce. Right. Mm-hmm. And so basically he, after like the third or fourth person, he basically answered all the questions the exact same way. He's like, make a hundred videos, make one part of each of those videos consciously better. Meaning like mm. you're trying to look for something to make a small improvement in every single time. Yeah. And by your hundred and first video, you're going to have a product that's so good that it's just going to work. That's awesome. Um, you also, so you talk, we talked about outsourcing, you outsource your YouTube thumbnails too. So do you just send the person like a bunch of pictures of yourself and then they work around that? Because the thumbnails are like, I mean, I'm looking at them right now. Like you've always, you've got these like funny faces and stuff. Like how did, like, what, what's the strategy behind that? Did you come up with that idea to like, kind of have like a funny expression or. Well, that's so the numbers came up with that idea. So typically there's like a, the numbers skew very much on like higher performing thumbnails that include people and then also emotion. So like mm. those two things across a huge data study, those things stood out as being major indicators as to whether the thumbnail will do well or, or it won't. Wow. It goes far. It's far more nuanced than that in terms of like what it means for the specific video, but absolutely it's done very strategically. Hmm. And then in addition to how you can do this at scale is, and I, I, Every time we onboard a new client, I basically get them to sit in front of a camera and basically do like every expression under the sun. <laughs> and then we can then crop that still and okay. then fit it to really capture the tone and the story we're trying to tell in the title thumbnail combination. So yeah, we do typically have all of these ready to go. And it makes my job so much easier because I, I can just say my to my team, like, okay, this thumbnail, we want this text, this visual aid, and then we want still... B6 or okay. because I, I feel like that captures the tone that I'm trying to portray through this little micro story going on with the title thumbnail and the video. Right. Cause I think in some of them, I, I want to say that you, it's the same picture of you, but it's like a different, uh, thumb. I mean, it's a different video, but it's the same facial expression. Yeah. yeah similar. That, that's for sure. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes I'll definitely go back to well and repurpose a facial expression just cause it works. And yeah. there are instances where uh, I even use the exact same photo and the, the one that pop, comes to mind and that was just because I, I didn't, I wasn't, I was, I'm sorry, I was away. So I couldn't even get, get another photo. So I just had to go back to what, what, what I had handy and it ended up working anyway. So oftentimes I think hmm. people, uh, they overcomplicate things. Right. Whereas if you go to some channels, like a great example is think media, they, they make content around video marketing and YouTube and they, they have their thumbnail process down pat. They capture all the elements that you're trying to hit within a thumbnail. They also make their job very easy because they do have a consistent look and feel. And if you can establish that, like, I don't think your thumbnail should look all the exact same. I think that's a bad idea. Mm. But if you do have a very consistent look and feel that can be a huge benefit. If one of your videos starts popping off, because Mm. then people will become accustomed to looking for that similar style and spot you out of a crowd. And that Mm. can be super beneficial to really make the wave that you're riding go on for a lot longer. Okay. Yeah. I, I put my thumbnails, I make them red. So I feel like yeah. they, I mean, that like help, helps them stand out a little bit because red is like, well, that's bright. So mm-hmm. I don't know. That was my strategy. Um, but let's move on to Instagram. So three big, big things you said about Instagram, kind of similar to YouTube, have a niche. And, um, but also with Instagram, it's making reels because they're really big on reels and try to have an established audience and be consistent. Is that the, those are the best strategies for Instagram? Yeah, I, th- I think volume is a huge piece there too. Like they want people that are posting very consistently and a ton of content. Mm. And I think where people get wrong here, go wrong, is that they'll post something out that doesn't do exceptionally well. And then they let that discourage them and stop how much they're putting out there. Mm. Where 
like Instagram doesn't care how your last post did as much hmm. as people think. Cause like you could have one video that does really poorly and the next one could go viral. So I think people should really take it more as a volume approach where you're throwing darts against a dartboard and you're hoping that one of them's a bullseye. So the more that you get out there, you're probably gonna get better at creating content, but two, you're giving yourself more opportunities to, to hit that bullseye. So volume's a huge piece. The niche is going to make it far faster for you to grow because if you do start getting a ton of traffic, it's the same sort of thing we mentioned earlier. If mm-hmm. you don't have a niche, how can you expect people to know, first of all, what they're signing up for and to two, know, know that they want more of it. So you're just going to increase your conversion rate of profile visitors to followers by having a very concentrated focus it's because people like to have to easily identify like what a point of value is. Like if you know, if someone can always get you a great deal on say, they can always get you a great deal on sports tickets. Like, you now know that that's that guy's point of value. And so when you meet someone else, you're probably going to describe that guy as that. It makes your job easy and you know you want more of it. Mm-hmm. So with the volume, though, I, see, this is what the thing that I struggle with, too, because I feel like uh, maybe some people get annoyed if you post too much or they unfollow. I mean, how if common is that? They unfollow, they were, if they get annoyed or unfollowed, they were never your followers anyways. That's my mentality every single time. But does it hurt you to to have followers that have muted you? Like but maybe if, they, they still technically content, they won't mute you. Okay. Right. Like, so it's like, so that's the piece where it's like, if you have to limit your output, cause it's going to alienate people, then probably not your fans. And I would rather have a thousand people who are diehard fans than 1500 that are not really that interested. So mm-hmm. like, I think that if people are having that issue, the only exception would be obviously if you're a personal page, but then it's like, why are you trying to grow a personal page? Right. So mm. There's, there should be some business element to this or some bigger plan. And if that's the case, and you're typically serving a specific audience, the people that are following these pages, they can't get enough of it. Or the, the people that you want around can't get enough of it. Okay. Yeah. And you say with the hashtags um, to only use 18 to 25, why, what, what's the strategy there? Why wouldn't you use the full 30? I always use the full 30 hashtags. Yeah, you absolutely can. I, I was just going off of, again, like something that I had seen over my own research based on my own pages at that time. And these things are fluctuating, but I would, yeah, that's a great rule of thumb is to go for 30. If you can get 30 very relevant hashtags, I would never compromise relevancy to try to hit that number of 30. Like, does it punish you if you have too many hashtags or something or how? No, no, no. no that, that's a rumor that went around. Oftentimes you have to understand that social media experts will just make stuff up because, and I say experts <laughs> in air quotes, because they'll just make stuff yeah. up because they want to be the person that dropped this latest news. Right. So mm. it, it gives people stuff to talk about. So they'll just make stuff up off, often. If you got to think about this logically, if Instagram's saying you can use 30 hashtags, why would they penalize you for following their own rule? Right? Like that, that makes no sense. So no, you, you can use 30 hashtags and you're not going to be penalized for it. Okay. Yeah. Cause I just, I don't understand, um, a lot of the, the algorithms, I guess. And like you had this video, it was really interesting. Um, you know, how to get rid of ghost followers because you do say that is bad. So, and I think there are definitely a lot of ghost followers. Like on my page, it's interesting. I recently, I had David Duchovny on, right? Like that's probably the biggest interview I've ever done. Probably, maybe I'll ever do. And I feel like if, if anybody follows me, they're going to like that post, right? And, but I don't even think I got 25% of my own followers to like the post. So that, again, I, it makes me think like, are these people hiding me or why aren't they seeing this post or, or what's going on there? So well, like engagement rates are going to vary greatly depending on the size of your account. And then mm-hmm. even for a show like, like yours, like the, the first bit of time matters in terms of how far it's going to get pushed. And so even though the, he may be very, very famous, it doesn't mean that all of your audience is like really interested in, in him per se. Right. Mm-hmm. So 
that plays a role too. And ghost and bot followers are kind of just, they're just a thing on Instagram. If you're, if you have an account for long enough, these random accounts are going to follow you. So while they are good to get rid of, truthfully, they're not going to have a major, major impact on your account. If you were to leave them there, unless hmm. there's thousands of them. Okay. Yeah. Cause here's my thing. And I, I went through and I looked and I don't think I have too many ghost fall. I, you know, it's like, I feel like I get them. And now that I, after I saw that video, when I get them, I, I block them or remove them mm-hmm. immediately. Cause I feel like the old ones, if they're there, I can't find them or they're buried, but I think they, they kind of disappear on their own because people report them. But what yeah. I do have a lot of is I have a lot of these people that follow me, but they're following 4,000 other people. So they're yeah. probably never going to see my content. So is it worth it to have them as a follower? Does it, does it help me to, to remove them or just, should I just leave those people? That's, that's completely up to you. In theory, it could help you because it could bring up your engagement rate. You, mm-hmm. you want as active of an audience as possible, like as concentrated of an audience as possible, because that's what's going to allow you to get far more engagement and velocity quickly, and then just get more, basically more positive data in the eyes of Instagram. Plus, if it's more concentrated audience, they now have a better idea as the type of person to show your content to in the future too. So that's why it's also very important to have a niche because you basically make Instagram's job easier, which then in turn is going to help yourself out because they're going to show your content to more people because they're more confident about who to show that to. Okay. Yeah. Cause like you, you had a really good video with the, you know, it was fascinating how to gain a thousand followers on Instagram in a week and you show how you did it. And you started this page, the wolf army. It was like a dog page and um, you did the follow for follow, which I thought was like, it was a bad thing, but, but you, the way you went about it was interesting because it's kind of like what I just said, where people are following 4,000 people. You, you targeted people that aren't following 4,000 people. Maybe they're only following 60 or a hundred or something. Right. So then they're much more likely to see your content. Yeah. So I don't, that was also on a theme page. So if, if this is something that you're going to do for your business, I would not recommend doing like crazy follow for follow, but mm-hmm. it is, if you do it very slowly and strategically, it's a great way to get your account off the ground while also attracting highly targeted people. So to explain the logic behind it is I would go to accounts that are similar size to mine. And then I would go to see the, the people who had interacted with content from that page, mm-hmm. which then tells me that this person doesn't care about the size of the page. They care about the content. Then I would go see their, their following ratio to see if there's a good likelihood that they would follow me back or not. So essentially I'm just trying to get my first bit of audience that will engage with my content that can then allow me to snowball that and start ranking on hashtags and getting on the explore page page to grow far more organically. So I wouldn't go as crazy as I did for that video. That was definitely like a speed run type thing. Okay. But it is a strategy that you can implement, but I would do so very slowly because even since then, Instagram will throw out what's called an action block. If you do this too aggressively, because they're basically penalizing you for what they consider to be spammy or bot like behavior. So if you do this, you're going to want to be very slow and very strategic. And again, you're doing so at your own risk. I'm not advising you to do that. Okay. Yeah. Let's talk about that because you got an action block because they accused you of buying likes and followers. So what happened with that? And what are your thoughts on censorship and banning people on social media? Because you said something about you called Instagram and you were able to contact them and get it fixed. But why do you think you got blocked in the first place? So I, it wasn't because we bought likes or followers. I was just doing actions too fast in terms of like what their algorithm deems to be too fast. Mm. So they're, they're monitoring like every little thing that you do on Instagram is being tracked. So then when you, when you flag them as being potentially inauthentic or going too fast or being spammy, then they can hit you with an action block. It's essentially like a warning saying, slow down. But the issue mm. is when you're a new account, they give out action blocks far easier because you don't have any trust with oh. Instagram and they really have like this 
number okay. out there that's called like a trust score. So accounts that have been around for a longer period of time that haven't been doing spammy things are going to have more leniency in terms of how many actions they can perform. But usually when people are trying to grow a business or a theme page, it's a brand new page. So they, they understand that, that that's probably more likely that they're going to be spammy. So they do hit you with action blocks far faster. So for that account, for that video, I got hit with one and then I just have to wait it out. You can try to contact them, but nine times out of 10, then you're not even going to hear back. Hmm. And it's very low priority for them because sure. realistically, most of the times people who have been hit with action blocks did deserve it. There are obviously <laughs> exceptions, yeah. but oftentimes people are being kind of spammy. Like that, that, that strategy, if you go crazy with it is quite spammy. So uh, it is just part of the game at this point. It, but back in like five, 10 years ago, that stuff was working beautifully and people were making tons of money growing super awesome pages using that. But the platform has adapted and evolved. What do you do now? What is your main strategy to, cause you have 9,000 followers, so you don't, you're not need to build it from nothing. You have a base to work with. Is it mostly just creating content and using hashtags or do you, do you reach out to people? Do you comment? Do you send messages? What, what is your strategy now? Yeah. I think once you get to a, a point where you have a decent base, I think it's more about content should be your main focus. And then mm-hmm. also keeping people engaged. You can also do like collaboration content with other pages that maybe very much in alignment, or you can pay for, for promos and shout outs again on pages that make a ton of sense, but content's usually going to be your best friend because that's, what's going to help you get in front of more people via hashtags, explore page, meaning people that aren't currently following you, which can help you grow even farther. So the majority of your time should be spent on creating great content for sure. Okay. So what do you think about sending uh, Instagram messages? I got somebody sent me I think it was a podcast and I, and they're like, Hey, we thought you might want to listen to this. And I was like, so I messaged him back and I said, what is your response rate to this? Like you, you, people get mad at you, like for spamming them with them. And they're like, actually, no, most people enjoy it. And then also I've noticed the thing with the people send messages and they'll do these voice memos, which is more Mm -hmm. personalized. What is your thought on that? Do you use those techniques at all? Or yeah. So I'm constantly interacting with people who have asked me questions or Mm -hmm. people that I reach out to via Instagram DM. And I love sending the voice memo because it is far more personal, but it's also faster too. Like mm-hmm. I'd rather just speak it than I'd rather do that than typing it. But in terms of automated messages, I'm rarely for that because like it is, a, it's very much a numbers game, mm-hmm. but you can also get hit with an action block for doing that as well. So mm-hmm. I typically try to stay away from anything that could be construed as, uh, or misconstrued as inauthentic or spammy. Okay. So I would say that typically falls into that camp. Of course, you're going to have some success with, with anything. And mm-hmm. I'm sure they, they're getting some success too. And you're going to get better success the more targeted it is. But you you can get in trouble for doing stuff like that in terms of getting your account either action blocked or eventually shut down. Wow. Okay. Good to know. Yeah. I just I hadn't tried that really that very much, and I just wonder what your thought. That's that's good to know. So let's talk about um, Facebook because you are not on Facebook, and for me, the Facebook groups have been money. Like I, I share a podcast in groups that relate to the guests. So if it's like, you know, a band or a movie show, a TV show, I, mm. I there's usually a Facebook group for fans of those things. And I put like in this one, I'm going to try to post it in the social media marketing group. There's like 28,000 followers. I'm going to try to share that. Have you not, uh, why, why aren't you on Facebook or why don't you think that's valuable? For what I do, like it would either be to make a Facebook group or like a personal Facebook like fan page. And I just don't see the ROI being there in terms of really what, what it would take for me to create content for it. And then like I could, I could use them to promote my videos, but YouTube's doing most of the tra- work for me. In mm-hmm. terms of the videos ranking is going to get, it's going to go far. It's going to go way farther than it would say, even in a Facebook group. Plus most people that are going to watch a video on Facebook, they're not going to come over to YouTube. So they can't even subscribe to me or, or watch other of my videos too, unless they were to click 
into YouTube. So mm-hmm. I think it can be an awesome strategy. And what, what you were describing is an awesome way to grow a podcast. I think that's phenomenal. But for what we're doing, I just don't see the ROI being there in terms of what, what I would have to put in to then get back. I just don't think it would equate. Uh, it's definitely worth experimenting with. And I probably in the future will tiptoe because I know groups can be very, very powerful. We yeah. just haven't spend much time there. Yeah. And I noticed because the one thing, the main thing, I, I mean, you probably don't know a lot about it since you're not on Facebook, but the issue I have with Facebook is, is I guess it's similar to Instagram where they don't show my stuff to all my followers. Like I have 16 or 1700 followers on my podcast page and I th- it'll tell you how many people it reached. It'll be sometimes it'll be two or 300 people. And I'm like, and I think it's because they want you to pay for the boost. And I think Instagram's kind of cracking down on that too. Yeah. The engagement or the reach rate in terms of, uh, on, on your Facebook page is awful. I think the average yeah. engagement rate is around 1% on Facebook, which is truly atrocious when you think about what that would mean to have a decent following that people that are actually seeing your content. Mm-hmm. So that's largely why we don't spend a lot of time with Facebook that we largely feel like that time has, has passed in terms of that being a huge vehicle. Of course, there are always people killing it on every platform. Mm-hmm. So there are people who are using Facebook watch that are absolutely killing it. There are people who have Facebook pages that are doing phenomenal on Facebook groups too. But you can only put your time in so many places right. and you can only be experts in so many places. So Facebook's not one that we've deemed that a realm that we want to play in, but there are always people winning. Yeah. I mean, I will say like the group thing has been huge because what I'll do is I, I can share, especially if the, if it's a thing where it's like, there's multiple groups on that subject, like hair metal. Like if I interview somebody that's hair, there are literally like a hundred hair metal fan groups and I can share it to like 10 or 20. And then the reach yeah. will go into the thousands. And I'm like, wow. So that can, that's, that is one thing that I've learned that's worked for yeah, me. That's, that's very powerful. And that's very targeted too, which makes mm-hmm. it even more valuable. Yeah. And like with social media, I mean, for this interview, I'll try to see if I can share it on multiple social media groups, see how many people can reach it. Um, TikTok. Let's talk about that one. So, uh, it's just like fun little short clips. I kind of resisted this one a lot at the beginning. Cause I thought this is like for kids. Um, uh, my niece is on there. She has a quarter million followers. How can yeah. she monetize that though? Is there? Yeah. So much like any other social media platform, it's all about funneling the traffic that you're getting to go make a purchase uh, okay. either of your own product or somebody else's product. They do also have a creator fund on TikTok too. So if you're in certain countries, you can get paid based on ads hmm. on your videos too. So that is a route, that is a route you can go. I, I don't think the CPMs are very high, but that is something that you can do. And so TikTok is an amazing opportunity to build and develop an audience and you can still do it extremely quickly there. It is by far the fastest place where you can grow, but exactly why it grew so fast as a platform is exactly why it's really difficult to monetize. It's you can grow so quickly on there because it's so hard for people to leave TikTok. It is very, very <laughs> difficult for you to get someone who's on TikTok off of TikTok. And normally right. these purchases that are going to take place that would make you money, they're not going to happen on TikTok. So that that's where like the biggest curse comes in for TikTok is yes, you can grow an audience very quickly, very, very big, very large, but getting those people off there, it can be, can prove very, very difficult. Right. So for you, like you want to people to, you would want people to go to your YouTube channel. Yeah, ideally, but all you have to do is go look at TikTokers and then go look at their YouTube channel. Unless they already had an existing YouTube presence, nine times out of 10, they'll have like a million on TikTok and then like a few thousand on YouTube. And like that speaks to the the crossover. It's just not there. People are in the consumption pattern of TikTok. They're consuming TikToks. No, and it's that's what makes yeah. it so hard. You're right. Because yeah, I think my niece, like I said, she has a quarter million followers on TikTok, but I think on Instagram, she's she's at like twenty thousand or so. It's way mm-hmm. lower. So you're right. I don't yes. think there's a the crossover. That's interesting. 
Um, Snapchat. Uh, I, I don't really like this. I feel like I'll check it out sometimes, but I feel like most of the content is just worthless to me. Do you agree with that? Yeah, truthfully, I use Snapchat very infrequently and it's to communicate. It's just to communicate with uh, a few select friends and whatnot. Like, I don't, yeah, I don't really consume any sort of content on Snapchat, but they do have some, some, some content there. And they also had that Snapchat, I believe it's called Snapchat spotlight over the last like, year or so mm-hmm. where they were giving out like a million dollars a day to creators. Huh. So they were definitely trying to get more content on there, Okay, but it's not a place where I spend much time. Yeah. Cause I feel like once Instagram did the stories, I feel like yeah, that's, that was tough. Why would you have two apps? It just doesn't make sense to me, but there are some, yeah, there are some people that I, I know that for whatever reason they love Snapchat. So I'll check to see what they're doing. That's pretty much yeah, it. Absolutely. It's a great way to connect with people and, and stay connected. But in terms of consuming the content that people are making for Snapchat, I don't spend much time on it. Mm-hmm. And then Clubhouse. I, I I just got on this the other day because I, I heard you talking about it. So I was like, well, I should probably check this out. And yeah. I don't even think I was able to get on in a room or something. I didn't really understand it. It said like there was things that were scheduled. And I was like, well, I'm not going to come back to what this is like. Uh, what is your thoughts on that app? And it, it seems like that one's kind of died out a little bit, right? Yeah, it was definitely a, a fad because it came in at the perfect timing mm-hmm. when everyone was so starved for human connection. And this was the closest thing that people could get to live human connection. And especially when there's no business events going on, it was just, and the invite only nature of it, it all was just like the perfect timing. So when it was brand new, it was a crazy opportunity because the people that were spending time on there would normally be so difficult to get a hold of or near impossible. But it's now reached the point where it's kind of, it is what it is. And I still do think that there is decent value there, but a lot of the excitement and what really made it very cool and powerful at the beginning has since died off a little bit just because of how things have gone. Mm-hmm. But there are still people growing, growing large audiences on there. And the, the one-on-one nature of it, the, the ability to, the fact that it's live, like live is always very, very powerful. So if you do develop an audience there or you get a lot of people in a room, it's very powerful. It's a very powerful tool for marketing purposes, hmm. but I don't spend as much time on there as I used to. I don't know if I, I don't even remember the last time I've been on there mm. because when it first came out, I was spending hours and hours and hours on there. And eventually okay. just like you, you step back and you're like, okay, I'm, I'm tricking myself into believing that I'm being highly productive. But then you, when you look at what you actually left with that time, typically it doesn't make much sense when you actually analyze mm. from an ROI perspective. So right. yeah, I, I think a lot of people, like I said, there's always people winning everywhere. But Clubhouse sure. is not a game that I'm playing in anymore. I, I just think that it died off quite a bit. Yeah. Okay, good. Because I, I wasn't really getting that one either. Um, well, let's talk about podcasting. So I love what you said about this. This is, this is you nailed it. You said it's a great, po- having a podcast is a really good networking tool. You said some oh, of your man. best friends are people that you met through your podcast. So even if people, you know, they're not getting as a huge audience from their podcast. I mean, if they, if they reach out to these bigger names that are guests, at least they have a conversation with them. Like kind of like I'm having with you right now. I mean, I'm guessing to hire you as a social media expert is probably going to cost a lot more than just having you on my podcast for free. Yeah, without a doubt. And you nailed it right there too. It's, it's such a different dynamic. And I think controlling the social dynamic is exactly what makes it so valuable. If you just said, okay, can we hop on a phone call? I'd be like, okay, here's the rate. But if you <laughs> said, let's hop on a podcast, which is essentially the same thing. It's really, you're, you're leading the ship here. And I, it's free, right? So mm-hmm. that's, that's the hugest thing. And I think if, if you look at it like that, then you can't lose. And so if you're playing from this far more of a long game, you could also develop the audience over time while also building your network and your skill set too. So I think it all depends on how you look at a podcast. Plus you can do it very inexpensively or in a lot of cases, completely for free too. So I still think podcasting is awesome. 
Yeah. And you say, have a very strong why, like, why do you want to network? Why do you want to meet these people? Why do you want to have these conversations? Um, and, and then that will kind of help steer the ship as well. And then I like this. You made the video decision to start a podcast, uh, a couple good, good things in there, more fail than succeed. Um, you know, people are not going to be Joe Rogan, but a lot of people quit because of misinformation or because not enough listens. But if, you know, you should do it even if no one listens, right? Because again, the networking and the other uh, gains that you can have from it. Yeah. A lot of people make the mistake of thinking that this is like a huge gold mine because they see the hundred million dollar contract from Joe Rogan. Right. Like, oh, I could do that. They're just talking on camera. They could do that. And yes, in theory, you can do that. But to build an audience is incredibly difficult, especially via podcasting. So if you come into it through the lens of, okay, I can't lose doing this, then it makes it a no-brainer to stick with it. And you're actually improving your chances of actually making this a profitable thing too, with approaching it from that very long-term lens of, I'm going to do this regardless. So I think that's nearly a necessity when you're starting a show, unless you have marketing dollars or a, uh, a budget behind it or an existing audience. Yeah. So you talk, yeah, you talk about videos and patience. So definitely have video with your podcast. And now do you think the short clips that helps too with, with, because that's one of the biggest problems of podcasting you say is discoverability, like people finding it. So if you have the short clips on TikTok or Instagram, then people go, Oh, okay. Maybe I'll check out this. Yeah. It's going to increase your workload a ton by incorporating video, but Uh you have to look at what the goal is for the show. If it is to try to grow an audience, you can easily outline that discoverability is a problem within true podcasting medium. So like strictly audio. So then you go look at that. If you don't have a budget, how can you supplement that negative with other areas where that's not a problem? So on YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, reach is less of a problem, far less of a problem because we're exposed to content from people we don't follow all the time on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. So it really just kind of counterbalances that out and gives you more of an opportunity to attract an audience over time. And it's definitely not going to happen overnight. Mm -hmm. Sometimes someone may have to see like five or 10 of your clips before they actually come check out your podcast, but it's something that can slowly build and grow with you. And it's another asset that you have. So essentially, if you get to the point where you start charging advertising for your shows, if you also have the asset of your channels on social medias, you can then also charge an additional fee to the advertisers to say, okay, you'll also be included in our social channels and things of that nature. So it just gives you a ton more flexibility as well as a far better opportunity for you to actually grow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. And it's, it's like we said before with the podcast, same thing. If, if, you know, you want to have that niche, but also like if you're passionate, the general put more, cause that's kind of what mine is, is more general, but, it, but I am really passionate about it. So it just, it yes. just takes a lot longer to get there. Whereas if I was doing a strict, uh, certain, level a certain subject of podcasting, I might be able to build a faster audience, but also isn't there kind of more of a ceiling? Cause that's for me, like I started out, you know, I interviewed a lot of comedians and musicians, but I see like the people that have the music podcasts and I'm like, I look at the ceiling for that. And it's probably like for rock music, it's Eddie trunk. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he's probably got like 300,000 followers, but that's probably like the top. And I'm like, that ceiling is, is pretty low compared to like a Joe Rogan or Adam Carolla or Howard Stern. Yeah, but there's also only like three of those guys, right? Whereas there's a ton of people who could make a very solid living within a niche, too, mm-hmm. right? So I think people, they don't realize what you can do with a niche audience. I think I think too few people appreciate how many people are making multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars a year with a very niche audience. And I think that people think it needs to be way bigger than it actually needs to. Whereas if you're a creative entrepreneur slash marketer, 
you can get a lot of money with not a huge audience, especially if it's targeted because you become the destination to communicate with this group of people. Mm -hmm. And regardless of what you're doing, who you're speaking to, there are businesses that want to speak to these people specifically. And then you in turn charge a premium for that. So absolutely. You were right in saying that if you were far more niche focused, you grow way faster. And it's very simple. Like for, if you're interviewing a wide group of people, you may get a ton of listeners, but repeat listeners is going to be far lower because they came for that person, not necessarily the subject matter of the conversation. So you have to essentially sell them on you while they're there for somebody else. Whereas if it's for a specific content type, say if it's digital marketing, you're, you're less selling them you. That's definitely part of it, but you're more selling the subject matter and the topic or niche. That's why they'd stick around. Right. It just makes it more of an obvious, yes, I'm going to follow or yes, I'm going to subscribe. That makes sense. No, that's really good. And yeah, you have that whole video too about seven big podcast mistakes and people should check that one out. Uh, let's talk about a little bit about your podcast, Social Media yeah. University. Um, so did this podcast go through some changes? Because like I looked at a picture of you and it was like you in a suit and I just had to laugh, not because you look silly or anything, uh, mm-hmm. but just it was like so dead. I was like, what? This is like, is this the same guy? And it, did, did the podcast used to be called Do Dope Shit or something like that? Yeah, yeah. So the, so there's this quote from Kanye. Where it's, um, <laughs> it was actually from Dave Chappelle who was quoting Kanye. Okay. And uh, he's like, yeah, my life is dope and I do dope shit. So I, like, I just kind of really gravitated towards that quote because I think it's the mindset of it is like, the world is at your disposal if you go and, and capture it kind of thing. I, I really liked that. So when I started my podcast, it was very much to connect with different people. So, and I was also probably like 20 at the time. So I was like, oh, it sounds kind of funny. sounds kind of cool. And it's a f- name that would catch people's attention that I was trying to speak to. I was trying mm-hmm. to speak to people my age. And I know that people who wouldn't be interested in podcasts, maybe that name would be enough to hook them in for an episode. Mm-hmm. Then, it, then it did change. I changed it to uh, Project Passion because the same sort of elements were there. But when I was, as the, as the show was growing, the name was becoming a limiting factor. Cause like oftentimes when I'd go speak at events or, or things of that nature, they wouldn't even let me put the name of my show in my stuff because it said shit. Oh, like, okay. Yeah. yeah. So then I was like project passion. And then I decided to change it to social media university because I just felt like that fit with all that we do so much better. So right. that's what it is right now. That's what that specific show will stay at. Uh, hopefully forever. It just okay. makes so much more sense. That's that's cool. I like it. I think it's neat that you went through all these changes. Like you tried something and you're like, okay, this isn't working or I've reached the ceiling. And then you're just like reinvent. You went from the ACL stuff to the social media and then do dope shit to passionate to social media universe. I mean, it's like, it's really cool how you just, you were able to reinvent yourself. So how yeah. do you know when it's time to make that change? Like when it's time to reinvent yourself? You know, I think that's the easiest way to answer it. I know it sounds so cliche, but usually you can feel that. And I think the best thing that I can suggest to people is just to try before you think you're ready. Like if I had have been waited to be ready for any of these scenarios, I wouldn't have ended up where I am now and where I'm going to go because I wouldn't have figured out the stuff that I didn't know yet. So you got to actually just get out there to actually start learning. And you do, once you start opening yourself up to opportunities, you quickly see and you start to know what an opportunity looks like. And then also the levels of these opportunities too. And where you may be leaving something on the table by putting effort here, where if you altered it slightly, it may actually have the potential to go far beyond what you thought possible previously. So it's usually, it's usually pretty glaringly obvious once you're in the thick of it. Okay. And I mean, obviously taking risks is a big part of that. It's, it's trying different things and just experimenting a little. Uh, Absolutely. You don't know what you don't know until you get out there and fall on your face a bit. And you say, um, another thing that people could do to, 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 um, 
to, you know, expedite this process is hire a coach because that you're going to pay more, you're going to pay money, sometimes thousands or whatever, but you're paying for the speed and the convenience. Um, you know, and you, and when you're looking at coaches, you say, look to see a coach, you know, not like the lifestyle, like, Hey, I got a Mercedes. It's like, is there a specific skill set that you can learn from this coach? Do you want, would you pay for that skill set? Yes. Yeah. And I, and I am someone who has spent tens of thousands of dollars on different education and coaching and things of that nature, because I saw where these people were and you can get there completely for free. And I will say that if you have the time, you can get there for free, but I'm someone who's looking at the bigger picture from opportunity costs. So say if I, I spend $10,000 today or whatever, but it teaches me a skill that like, I can then use to make a hundred thousand dollars the next year. That's, to me, that's a no brainer. But for a lot of people, they just can't get past what the dollars mean today. And they can't see that transformation for themselves in terms mm-hmm. of what they could do with that skill. So that's usually why people run into issues there or, or are so against coaching or courses is because they don't see what it could mean for them or, or what the knowledge means in the right hands. I think that's why I think courses oftentimes get a bad rap. It's because people are buying courses and then don't actually do what they're being taught. So then mm-hmm. in turn, they're just like, oh, it's a scam. Well, it's like, well, did you do the stuff that you learned? Did you, did you, did you build the business? More often than not, people are just very, very lazy. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's definitely true. And, and some of the, a lot of that stuff can be found on YouTube for free. hundred percent. Yeah. Almost every course out there you can find on between YouTube and blogs. I'm saying that right now as a fact, you can, for almost all courses, you can do that, but it's going to take so long for you to find the right pieces. Plus as a YouTube creator myself, the stuff that is actually probably the most valuable oftentimes also does the worst on YouTube because huh. YouTube is often a very generalist platform. Huh. So when you start to go actually very granular and it actually requires work, 90% of people are just like, nah, not for me because huh. there's, they don't want to actually put themselves through that. When it's very easy and very broad, it's exciting. Huh. Everyone wants to get involved. It's not overwhelming. The second it starts to become somewhat challenging, you lose the vast majority of people. So that's why a lot of us, are us creators, entrepreneurs, whatever, we can't even put out the stuff that we'd really love to a lot of times, or that would, that could be potentially life-changing because it wouldn't even get views. So the ROI just makes no sense. We're giving away all the stuff that we've take, taken so much time and effort to learn and people wouldn't even watch it. So it's like, what's the point? Wow. That's fascinating to hear that. So have you tried, like you've tried that you've posted some stuff that you think is really valuable and it just doesn't get views. I have a video on my channel where I literally walk through how anybody could easily in a year or two's time, replace their full-time income through basic YouTube videos. Okay. And to date it has 800 views. Really? So is it like, still there? I'm going to have to check that one out. Yeah. It's, it's still there. And okay. It's a big part of our business. We help people do it all the time. And I was like, this video should do well, but it won't because it requires, like it requires effort. So people are like, <laughs> Oh, I don't want to do that. But if you go look, especially at educational content, the yeah. videos that are like huge, they're usually very broad, very surface hmm. level stuff because the most amount of people can feel feel like they've learned something, but they're not overwhelmed. When people get uncomfortable. They typically go elsewhere. People love to live in their comfort zone. So the more difficult you make your content, yeah. you're, just, you're just making your funnel tighter and tighter and tighter. The value of these people will be substantially higher because they're very, they're very motivated. But as a YouTube creator, the views won't be there. So, but you, you don't think it, it could be partly too, like the title was something like that. Cause I feel like if you had titled it, how to make millions from YouTube or like quit. I mean, I feel like quitting your job and replacing it with YouTube. I mean, that, that should be just that title alone is so intriguing. You'd think millions of people would click it. Again, it's also a very competitive space and there's also uh, a lot of people that will, and will like lie. And I'm not saying that you, that, that video is not saying that you can make millions of dollars per year from YouTube doing this exact strategy. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's so 
there's it's very nuanced, but I've seen for myself through videos, and there's more examples than just that one that where I actually go deeper into actual strategy and execution, stuff that we that helps make us money in our business every single day. And they just don't do as well because it's not as approachable, it's not as sexy, it's not as easy. And oftentimes, even with educational content, people are largely looking to feel like they've learned, but not get themselves overwhelmed. Okay. And, that, and, that, and that's why courses make sense because you can get people in the door and then the people who are serious will happily pay for a course. So then it just makes more sense for everyone involved. Okay. Awesome. Well, I love you. I saw this quote on your Twitter. Um, when you commit to never giving up, failure becomes a thing of the past. I won't lose because I won't stop trying. And that what, that's what it's all about. Keep trying people. Your time will come. And I think you posted that and like you retweeted it because I think when you had posted that, you only had a, a couple thousand followers on YouTube or something. And then at that, after you shared it again, it was like you had, you had doubled or tripled or quadrupled or whatever, 10 times your YouTube subscribers, right? Yes. Yeah. And that's, that's exactly how that went. And that's been my mentality always, because if you're, if you become okay with just failing, it does, it really doesn't matter that much. So I've failed so many times through businesses, through different YouTube channels, like you name it. But when you view it as that's a lesson, not a failure, I know it sounds cliche and corny, but it is totally transformative because you just don't care anymore. And if you want to do something exceptional, like there's going to be people that either laugh at you or say it's silly, or you're going to stumble and fall. But if you don't put yourself out there, you can't get to those places that you think you want to go. So you have to, it's almost a prerequisite. Mm -hmm. And it's not only the things that you, the places that you want to go, but the places that you think you should be at. Right. Cause mm. I mean, that's, I, I mean, I, it almost sounds like cocky, but you kind of have to have that attitude. Like, cause if you don't think that you're good enough to be in that space, then why is anyone else going to do it? I love that you said that. And I, I think that's a very important piece for if anyone's listening to this and they want to be a YouTuber, even if you have, if you have any video out there and you want to be a YouTuber, you got to start presenting yourself. Like I am a YouTuber. Oftentimes people wait until they start making money from it or they're like, Oh, I can't call myself a YouTuber. If you don't believe you're a YouTuber, how are you going to expect someone who randomly finds you on the internet to want to sign up for more content? Like you have to believe it and like speak it into existence. And part of that is owning it. And also yeah. people typically do want to help you. Like I know there's, there's a lot of people out there that, that don't, but there are also <laughs> so many people that do. And if you don't own what you want, people won't even know to help you or that they, that they could help you. So owning it is an awesome thing to do. And wherever you think you can take it, you can probably take it a lot farther and you just got to start and then you'll start to build that confidence. And then the goalposts start to move. Yeah. It's so exciting. I mean, you're killing it. And I love it. Somebody told me that I was killing it yesterday and I just laughed. Cause I'm like, dude, I have like 500 subscribers. You have 85,000. Awesome. Yeah. But I mean, cause it's growing. It's cool. I started with like 10. So I mean, to, I mean. to see it, that go, it's amazing. Well, imagine, if imagine if 500 people came to your birthday party, you'd feel pretty <laughs> damn popular. Yeah. That'd be amazing. So it's just cool to see for me anyways. And like some people may maybe are not interested in this, but they're probably not listening to this episode. Uh, but I just love to see growth with anything. Yes. It's cool to see the numbers on my podcast and the subscribers and all that stuff grow. But I don't know how you went from to 85,000. I would love to get there someday. I hope I can do it. And, uh, may, with your tips, I think I'll just keep following your, your channel. Everyone's just subscribe to your YouTube channel, listen to your podcast. And, um, oh, and I like to end each episode. I forgot to, I don't know if I mentioned it. I ended each episode with a charity. Is there one that you want to give a shout out to here at the, here at the end or one that's close to your heart? Yeah, I, I think, well, you're in the States, right? So I don't know if they even mm -hmm. have this charity in, in the States. So, um, we, we have princess Margaret, uh, which is a cancer charity here. Okay. Uh, so, so I would just say, uh, 
any cancer charity that would be equivalent. To I can that. no, I can put that in. That's fine. I mean, I'm sure there you have a lot of Canadian listener, listeners that will check out this interview. So I'll put that in the notes and I'll put your uh, social media links and everything. And uh, is there anything else you want to promote here at the end? You no, know, no, I think you nailed it. If you want to connect with me personally, Instagram is probably the best place. If you want to learn, YouTube is the best place. And what I love that you said is that you love to see growth. And I think mm-hmm. that's why I was so drawn towards social media because yeah. it's a lot like life in general. When you start to get small wins, they compound over time. And the stuff that you did three years ago helps you get bigger wins down the line. So big time. That's, that's why I'm a huge, huge fan of it. Yeah, me too. Absolutely. Well, I love it. This has been really educational. So I appreciate all your time and uh, uh, lessons. This has been amazing. Of course. Thank you so much for having me on. All right. Thanks, Ben. I'll see you later. See ya. Bye-bye. Ben Levitt, social media expert. And I want to thank him for coming on the show. If you enjoyed this interview, do me a real quick favor and hit that like button either on YouTube or on social media. That will help me out immensely. And also, if you subscribe to the YouTube channel, I would love you forever. We are about 10 away from 600 subscribers. And then if I get 100 subscribers every month, I'll have 1,000 by the end of the year, which is pretty exciting for me. So make sure to check out Ben's channel and you can follow both of us on all social media, except he's not on Facebook, but I am. And as always, all your social media comments, likes, and shares help me out immensely. And of course, you'll also be helping Ben out by spreading the word about him and what he does. So thank you so much for listening or watching. Have a great rest of your day. And remember to shoot for the moon.